0: What's up, world? I'm Matt Newberg from Hungary, and this is The Feed. Each episode, we'll dive into conversations with the industry insiders who are leveraging technology to shape the way we eat. On today's episode of The Feed, I sat down with Stefan Kolb, co-founder and CEO of Shelf Engine, an automated ordering and intelligent forecasting system that helps regional and national grocers like Target and Kroger improve their gross margins by an average of 30%. In this episode, we'll chat about Shelf Engine's unique pricing model that guarantees gross margin improvements, how it forecasts store-level inventory, and how its auto-replenishment modules create a better customer experience both offline and online. Alrighty, I'm very excited to be joined today by Stefan Kolb. He is the co-founder and CEO of Shelf Engine, an AI-based wholesale replenishment platform for grocers that aims to reduce food waste through automation. Prior to Shelf Engine, Stefan owned Molly Salads, a Seattle-based wholesaler of pre-prepared meals selling to over 400 retail locations. Stefan, welcome aboard.
1: Oh, it's an honor to be on the show. Thanks for having me, Matt.
0: Very curious to hear more about your background in the prepared food space and kind of how you um, discovered the idea for Shelf Engine six years ago. Walk us through that uh, background.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I've done this pretty crazy thing in my early 20s, uh, where most of my friends decided to go get real jobs. Uh, (laughs) I started a food company. And I was really inspired, actually, by what was happening in Europe around grab and go, because in Europe, they have this just amazing grab and go um, with incredible selection. And so I launched this, this food company. And as we were scaling, and we were scaling pretty quickly, uh, discovered that uh, grocers and food service had very antiquated ordering systems. And in an outsider perspective, I thought all this was solved, right? I thought like a grocery store basically had no waste. Once in a while, an apple would go to waste. Uh-huh. But boy, was I wrong. And as it was, I started really getting more familiar with the industry and getting to understand all the different players there. And being in the back room of, you know, quite literally hundreds of grocery stores, I got to see the enormous amount of waste that was happening. And I thought this is just, this is absolutely wild. And so that's what got me inspired um, to, to pursue this problem. There was a lot more detail in terms of how I tried to first address this, which is really, you know, me starting to build some pretty wild spreadsheets around um, forecasting and then realizing there's an enormous opportunity to um, reduce food waste and to make an impact. And that's where I decided to say, I really like the natural food space. I really uh, enjoy the food industry. Uh, But I think my journey in terms of, of building this company is done. So I sold Molly's. And I decided to go and leap in on the software side of things, and make um, make a transformation in food waste.
0: Love it! Really fascinating, and like great to see, you know, like a first principles approach to to solving this problem. Having seen it firsthand as an operator, walk us through what does that look like in the back of the store. Like, what did you see that gave you that visceral reaction where you're like there's got to be a better way here. Like, what, what does that look like for someone who doesn't have access to these storerooms?
1: Yeah, there's probably two things that I would say are, are really important for you to know um, if you're not really embedded in the, in the grocery world. The first one is what gets ordered in the store most oftentimes, especially in fresh, is a guesstimate from someone who is working in that category. And um, quite literally, many, many of these places are doing this on paper and pencil. And if not, they have some sort of device that looks fancy, but quite literally, all they get to do is they get to decide how much they're going to order of each one of these products and override whatever the forecast is for how much they want to order. So it's a bit of the Wild West on that front. So that's the first thing that's really important to know. The second thing that's important to know is that the food waste in this country is really quite large, and it's actually much larger than you think it is. It's larger than what you think it is because a lot of the grocers are self-reporting how much waste they have. And what they do is they report what's called scanned-out waste. Scanned-out waste is when someone on their team scans out if something didn't sell, and they're gonna throw it away. Well, it turns out that they only scan out a certain portion of the products. Hmm. So when you go in the back of the store, And you see the amount of waste that it is. And it's often fairly comical because they can't figure out how to stack it. So usually they take shopping carts and they put all this waste in there. And it's kind of wild. So you have just this row of shopping carts with all this mound of waste in there. And there's a lot of laws out there that says, hey, you have to compost this waste or you have to send it to animal feed. But the reality is actually taking the packaging off a lot of this is, is really quite difficult. So it really just goes in the trash can. And so you see this mound of dairy and mound of produce, and they're all in these, in these shopping carts, and they just roll them over to the trash can and they throw them away. And it's rather devastating to watch that and to think to ourselves, well, there are people who are really struggling to buy groceries or people who just can't afford food at all. And this you know, product that is somewhat like perfectly good to eat is going straight, straight to the trash can, and that's, and that's highly disappointing.
0: It's perfectly good to eat because it has like a best buy date. It's not necessarily bad. It's just not as fresh and it's not worthy of paying the, the price point for the consumer essentially. Yeah. Right?
1: Even, even worse, even worse, they have what's called in the grocery industry perception dating. And so you have a best buy date, but usually most grocers will pull the product off of the shelf before the best buy date actually occurs of course. because right. they want to have a better perception to the consumer of having right. more, fresh product. So a lot of those items that are being sold or that are being um, discarded Mm -hmm. actually have an extra day of shelf life on -hmm. there and sometimes, you know, several extra days of shelf life. Um, So those are perfectly good products.
0: Totally. And it's very thematic because I just wrote about something called Marty.com, which is, you know, procuring a lot of those products, the overstock products from brands and distributors. And they have to basically try to retrain consumers to understand that these best buy dates are just suggestions for peak freshness from the retailer, right? Yeah. Or from the from the brands, you know, or whoever's setting these standards. I don't know. But it seems like it's a it's a multi-dimensional issue where you have retailers that say, we have XYZ standards. You have the FDA that probably has some other sort of rule. And then you have brands that say, this is the, like, in- integrity of our brand has to be you know, put a, draw a line in the sand and say it's good before this date. So really fascinating. Yeah.
1: I unfortunately know too much about Best Buy dates as um, (laughs) I had to deal with that in my last company. And it is Mm -hmm. a very, very rough science um, Mm. on, on that. And so it's, it's disappointing because I think we are throwing away a lot of really good food.
0: Interesting. There could be some really interesting AI or some sort of better and improved. I mean, definitely need, we need some better marketing around that. Absolutely. We've also had a fresh on the podcast before. I recently met with Relax. There's definitely more players emerging on in this space to do auto procurement. Talk to us, I think one of the reasons I was really interested to speak to you is you have a very different, a different model on the back end of this from when it comes to pitching grocers and the value prop you have. I would love for you to just kind of explain what sets Shelf Engine apart from those players.
1: Yeah, great question. So before Shelf Engine, most all solutions for grocery were these really big ERP solutions. And so they did your forecasting, but they also did an enormous amount of tasks for you, and were just really big products with a lot of features. And when we jumped in, we had a core thesis around a couple of things. The first one was that we were not going to build a giant ERP. The only thing we were going to do is do forecasting, and do forecasting exceptionally well. And that was important, especially for the construct of the team and expertise you need, right? Like our data science team and the people that we have here are really incredible levels. And so when you try to do too many things well, you're just going to get to mediocrity. And so we wanted to really be especially good um, at forecasting. The second thing that we came in with our core thesis is really important. That was meaningful distinguishing factor from the rest of them is that um, most every other system out there, what they did is they integrated or built and had what's called a CAO, a computer assisted ordering, which means that someone in the store actually has a device they see an order and they get to either take that forecast or they get to override it. And we said we did something fairly radical which we said we don't think the team in the store should have a device and we don't think the team in the store should be overriding the orders. This is a level of control that Grocers had in the past that was essentially their crutch. It was their crutch for poor forecasting. Or is there crutch to essentially um, just give the amount of control to the person in the store? And what is inherently problematic with that is that um, when the orders are overridden, um, they're oftentimes just creating a lot more waste. The second part is that the people in the store were relying on systems with forecasts that just weren't very good. And so we said, okay, we are going to be able to do, you know, really well at forecasting. And we're going to take on um, this burden of, of the orders without anybody overriding it. And then the cherry on top is we will guarantee the results. And this is something that basically nobody had ever done. It's a pretty wild concept to essentially say we were, we were going to go ahead and guarantee these results such that we will um, essentially only charge you um, for a certain amount of guaranteed margin that you're going to make. And that was our approach. We decided to, um, to take on the market um, in this way and say, this is how it's gonna shift. Today, I look at, at the market and I look at our competitors and I realize that the US grocery market is going to shift to a place pretty soon where CAOs no longer exist, where our thesis was absolutely correct. And that is because of the pressure on labor And um, the ability now in terms of forecasting, where we are able to outperform the store so much that it really just makes sense to have a completely automated replenishment system. And that's uh, that's the the world that we're seeing now and the shift that we're seeing in grocery now.
0: That's a really interesting approach. So you're actually taking on the inventory risk on behalf of the grocer.
1: Yep, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Yeah, so in, in more specificity, what we do is We go to the grocery store and we say, we will order all your products and we will only charge you for what sells. We'll go to the vendor and we'll pay them for everything they deliver, but we will only charge you for what sells. And for this service, we will charge you a fee on every SKU. However, that fee is less than the actual shrink you're incurring before. So you will have a guaranteed margin increase by working with us. And... That is something that they basically have never heard from any sort of other software vendor.
0: Fascinating. So that you're basically capturing whatever that, you're, you're guaranteeing them a certain margin and whatever you get above that is just gravy on top for you. You're incentivized to have the best ordering algorithm on the market because you're financially incentivized to.
1: That's exactly right. You can kind of think of, a, of us um, as if we were a, a quant in New York trying to outperform <laughs> the market, right? We're in this position where we're trying to maximize sales as much as possible and maximize margin as much as possible. Because if we can do that, then we've essentially made more money for ourselves. And that is directly aligned with the grocer in terms of the Um, impact that they want, which is they want to achieve as many sales as they possibly can while making as much margin margin as they possibly can.
0: Got it. So no SaaS fees is just this model that's driving all your. Well,
1: so I will say with a caveat um, we do have some customers who have elected to um, work with us um, in more of a SaaS traditional model. And um, we do do that with um, some of our customers for a variety of reasons, um, but that is an option. But we always lead with the fact of, hey, we're so confident in terms of what we do, we will guarantee you results. And um, you know, we've been able to demonstrate that now um at a at a very large uh scale.
0: It's really fascinating and very unique. How how are you able to financially underwrite this purchasing activity? And do you ever end up in a place where you you are vulnerable from a payable standpoint.
1: Yeah. I mean, technically speaking, we're always vulnerable from a payable standpoint. Um, so we have to perform, um, to be able to, uh, especially at the scale that we're at today, um, to be able to be in a good place. So we're able to underwrite all of this because of our, of our performance, which is that we are able to generate a margin increase for the grocer as well as for ourselves. Um, the key part here that I'm guessing you're probably getting to is in terms of the cash flow perspective, which is, hey, you still have the grocer paying you and the, and the, the vendor that needs to get paid, um, which is absolutely correct. Um, in um, most all scenarios, um, the minute that the, the grocer pays us, um, we pay the vendor. We do have a product offering that we give vendors, which is they are able to get paid Upfront on their deliveries um, for a fee. And so we offer that. Having been a vendor in the past, I understand cash flow quite well and um, the strain on cash flow. So um, we offer that to our vendors um, as a lending option.
0: So you're almost like you're a factor as well to some extent. Basically, yeah. Really interesting. So you're making money on both sides of this.
1: Um, well, I would say the majority of our business, we do not have any sort of... Um, offering or we do not uh, pay the vendor up front, but um, for, for a portion of our business, we do.
0: Really interesting. I think some, something like this should also exist in the restaurant industry as well. I guess focusing in on, on what makes grocers unique. Like when I was at the convenience conference the other week, someone was like, when it comes to new technology, casinos are first, then comes like, you know regular merchants and then restaurants and then grocers are like the and then c stores are below the grocers um i don't know why we were talking about casinos but we were in vegas so (laughs) grocers are the point is the grocers are one of the slowest customers to adopt new technology i i guess like how are you able to earn their trust when it comes to, to automating such a big part of their business and how much are you actually automating when it comes to purchasing is it is it just a fresh fresh selection or is it literally everything in the store
1: yeah good question so in the past um grocers if they want to make a technology change what they usually do is um, they do some sort of rfp and they look at a bunch of different software solutions And then they select one. And then literally for a year to two years, there's an implementation phase. And it's really big and it's really complicated. So they uproot their old technology system and then they bring in a new one. And it is just an absolute nightmare of a situation. Um, And it's a really big bet for them. We knew that we couldn't do that, um, especially being a venture company. You know, you can't really go to a bunch of venture capitalists and say, okay, hey, we're building this thing and it's going to take, you know, at least a year for us to land a customer and then two years to implement. And then we'll be able to show you, you know, kind of growth that we have. You can't, you can't do that in venture. That's not going to happen. And um, so we were in this position and said, we also want to make an impact in this industry fairly quickly. So we, we came up with a, a, a proposal for the grocers where we said, let us pilot what we do in a very small part of your store for a small um, number of your stores. And let us show you what we can do. After that, we can talk about what the scale is. And by the way, we've made it so that you don't have to uproot your entire system. All we need to do is for you to send us your sales data. You send us your sales data, we can operate fairly quickly. And we're literally talking about a setup phase that is four to six weeks. Right? Unheard of compared to... This, this other implementation. And so we come in, we do this pilot, and of course, you know, we know in basically every situation we're going to d- deliver a, a massive margin gain and a sales gain. And what we've demonstrated over and over again is the fact that um, the grocers make so much more on their bottom line that after the pilot, they can't have a conversation other than talking about how quickly they can expand <laughs> us through their entire store, and through many of the other stores. And that has been our our go-to-market strategy um, to date. And, um, you know, we just had to prove ourselves. Um, We didn't have a name for ourselves before. We just had to prove it.
0: Love it. Really interesting tactic. Um, And I think that, like, putting everything on autopilot for them and doing it in a a low-risk way with a lot of upside um, makes a lot of sense. And you can extrapolate what that looks like across the total store. What, what are you able to, to share with us as far as those kind of margin improvements? And then maybe talk about some of the second order effects of, of reducing waste when it comes to everything from labor to how customers react to having more products available on the shelves with less out of stocks, et cetera, et cetera.
1: Yeah. So it depends on the type of grocery and the the type of of, um, food service operation. So, for example, um, it's pretty common for large food service operations to have quite slim gross margins. So we're talking, you know, sometimes they'll have a gross margin that's like 7%. And if we're able to reduce their waste um, by, say, you know, uh, 10%, then we're literally talking about them having this margin now of 17%. So you're more than doubling their margin. And and we've seen a lot of that um, happen also in traditional grocery. Um, On average in grocery, we've seen um, uh, a margin increase, a relative um, margin increase by about 30%. Um, so if they were making, say, 20% gross margin, now they're making about 26% gross margin. Um, and so that's fairly typical for us when we walk in, uh, in the grocery realm, especially for fresh, um, in terms of the, the margin increase we're going to have. Um, in terms of sales growth, um, that's the one where we've kind of surprised ourselves. Um, and today, um, we're hovering kind of right around 9 or 10% in terms of sales growth. And most people ask themselves, like, okay, how are you able to actually grow sales? And, and many of these stores, sometimes some of them that, that really overstock their shelves, to say how are you able to, to grow sales? And the, the answer is, is that we make sure that the right products are stocked at the right time. You can have a totally full shelf, but your highest selling SKUs and the ones that have the highest propensity to sell probably don't have enough on the shelf, while your low volume SKUs that have the least... Propensity to sell, have too many products on the shelf, and we right size that. Um, and that gives us the ability to simultaneously increase sales as well as decrease waste. Um, and those are the results that, that we've seen. And food service um, has been really dramatic, as, as I would say, you know, uh, grocery has the pen and paper issue. Food service has another really large issue, which is not only do they have the, the pen and paper ordering piece. Um, but they don't have the volume and the, the same kind of traits as a as grocer. They have more volatility, which makes it even that much harder. And so we've seen, um, uh, even large, better results in food service than in, than
0: grocery. Really interesting. I'd love to kind of on that thread, you know, dive in a little bit more into your ideal customer kind of cohorts and like some of the banners that you have up on your site right now, food service, you got compass group. And then you have um, markets that I'm personally not familiar with, but like Bueller's, GNM, Harding's, who are kind of your ideal customers and, and are, who else do you want to call out that you know, you're currently partnered with?
1: Yeah, so I'll start with, um, with Compass Group. Compass has been very bold in that they've decided to share the actual results of our work together. We actually um, were in a panel uh, it's South by Southwest. Uh, it was a really, really cool environment, Matt. Um, there, was a, there was a panel, it was, it was Google, it was Compass, and it was, it was um, myself, uh, shelf engine. And um, we had just a packed room, like people standing all around just really wanting to learn more about how to reduce food waste. And one of the executives there at Compass just straight up shared the numbers. And he's like, this is absolutely dramatic. We've we've never seen this kind of impact um, in in our locations in terms of margin increase, um, the reduction of waste, and at the same time, we've seen this this growth in in sales. And um, you know, the the recording is online and it's available for anybody who wants to get it, um, where they they literally go out there and, and you know share with um, with the public the kinds of impact that we've had, and. That was a really cool moment because most of our other customers will not share their actual waste numbers, will not actually um, go in terms of public. So we have to kind of sanitize any of our case studies um, for um, for the public on this. So that was a particularly cool moment. We've got some notable customers that you will obviously know, you know, Target and Kroger um, out there, and and we're really honored um, to be working with them. Um, but there's also some really wonderful regionals, um, like Hardings, um, who are in the Midwest, who um, are just a really great grocer. And it's cool to, you know, walk down one of the aisles and say, hey, you know, this dairy section is performing significantly better today. It has way less waste. Um, it's selling much better because of um, our work with them. And that's an inspiring, fulfilling aspect of, of my job is I get to see that um, with those kinds of customers.
0: Love it. That's awesome. Really cool to also see Target and Kroger, you know, getting getting on board with this too. Uh, I had no idea, but definitely want to check out that South by Southwest uh, talk. I'm, I'm, I'm definitely bookmarking that. I'd love to dive into the technical side and just understand a little bit better what inputs are feeding your algorithms, right? You know, if I had to guess, there's probably some weather data, there's probably some holidays and events that get fed into that historical sales data that you're ingesting from these systems that you mentioned. Talk to us about the complexities there, what are all the factors you're taking into account, how that gets better over time as you grow your training set across more customers.
1: Yeah, yeah. So Matt, you are talking about one aspect of the forecasting that is really important, which is forecasting demand and all the different types of data that we have to take in to essentially forecast demand really well. But let me tell you about the magic that we have here that a lot of the other systems out there, actually any of the other systems out there, have not developed at the the level that we've been able to do. And the first one is in terms of inventory. Our capability of forecasting the amount of inventory in the store is quite remarkable. And the reason why that's important is because today forecasting inventory is really challenging is what throws off most of the ordering systems. So you can imagine that, especially for fresh, you'd think that forecasting inventory is a fairly simple equation. Oh, Hey, there's price that's delivered. So go ahead and add it to the inventory and there's product that's sold, take it out. And there's some stuff that's wasted. Um, go ahead and scan it out. The reality is, is that because there are so many inconsistencies, the forecasted inventory to the real inventory strays very quickly and so if your system thinks that there's 10 on the shelf but there's really two it's going to completely screw up your ordering and we understood that this was the number one thing we had to solve and so we invested very heavily on the technology side to be able to figure this out so what we do is is a a pretty cool concept which is called inventory simulations where we run millions and millions of simulations in terms of the possibility of how many SKUs could be in the store at any given time. So for each SKU, for each store, for every single day. And we add all these different kinds of factors into it, like um, what happens if FIFO is is the worst possible? What if happens if FIFO is the best possible? And we know all these traits about the store, and that feeds into those simulations. And then we're able to select... Are the most likely scenario that's happening in that store, which gives us the ability to get a very, very accurate inventory within the store. And that gives us a huge leg up compared to all the other systems that basically have to rely on humans having to count how much product <laughs> is in the store on a continuous basis. Wow! And so we've doubled down on this inventory aspect to be able to do that really well. Yes, we have an amazing demand model, and I'd love to you know, go in great depth on that and talk about how cool it is that you know, we can pick up on all these little signals, and we know um, what's going to happen in terms of why there's um, more shopping on a particular day than, than the other. Um, but the inventory aspect is truly what's given us that, that leg up. Um, the second piece is our ability to um, adjust the right amount of safety stock. And safety stock is is a really um, interesting and complicated concept, which is essentially saying if you knew inventory perfectly and you knew demand perfectly, uh, how much product would you want to have in excess to essentially um, be a buffer, one, just to look good on the shelf, but two, to essentially be able to take and withstand any sort of um, ups and downs in terms of the demand. And we've gotten very, very good at that as well. Um, to get that safety stock number appropriate for each one of the SKUs for each one of the stores every day according to the margin and the propensity for an item to sell and the importance of that item to be in the store. And more importantly, and this is the only customer-facing aspect that we have in the entire company, we give the store the capability to decide how much trade-off they want to have in terms of how much product um, they want to have in the store to maximize sales versus maximizing margin and we let the customer decide that and essentially say hey I'm willing to have more waste to try to capture more sales and we let them make that that trade-off and that's really on the safety stock aspect of it um, and this is this is um, quite revolutionary in the, in the world of procurement as none of the other systems enable um, the stores to be able to do that and that's um, on the forecasting front given us also a huge leg up um is that we give the stores a strategic ability to decide how much they want to have in their stores um rather than just kind of leaving it up to the system um to kind
0: of randomly decide just a quick follow i mean this is all incredibly fascinating we're learning a lot so thank you for for going through that yeah i didn't realize that this the, just understanding having a basic fundamental understanding of the store yeah you have to start there before you could even talk about seasonality and you know forecasting demand but um now, when, when a customer is, and when we're talking about customers, we're talking about grocers. When the grocer, someone on the, the in charge of merchandising or on the store floor, a manager adjusts that slider so that they're saying, "Okay, it's it's Thanksgiving. Let's let's be a little bit more generous with supply, and let's make sure we have enough on the shelves to encounter any shocks, that we can sustain any shocks, and still capture that sales growth." Doesn't that, if they, do, if they don't end up selling through and they, they over, you're bet you back to the same problem again, right? Where now maybe you're losing money because, or how does that work and how are you guys aligned on that? Because it seems like that could potentially throw this whole equation off.
1: Yeah, so the fundamental difference there is that we don't let the store employee do it. We let an executive at the grocery store um, do it at headquarters. And so we say, if you want more product on the shelf, then we will price that in
0: hmm.
1: here's what we recommend in terms of the right amount to have in your store. And this is the profit maximizing amount to have in your store. If you want to have more than that, um, you can do so. It is going to cost you, um, to be able see. to make that, make that shift. And, and what it. you just expressed is, is exactly the fundamental problem with the CAOs in grocery, which is that they move that slider or they increase that amount. And, and, and a lot of those increases don't look big because maybe you have six of those items that you need to order and they order eight. Well, they order eight and that's 25% more than they actually should have on the shelf. And that's um, or actually technically, sorry, 33% more than they should have mm-hmm. on the shelf. And that's, that's the challenge with letting people in the store make orders is it looks like small small changes but when you're literally talking about tens of thousands of SKUs and you make those small changes for all of those, it turns out to be an enormous amount of food waste. Um, and that's why our core thesis is it needs to be completely automated ordering and nobody in the store should be touching it.
0: Very fascinating. You touched on something around, you know, we, we talked about the supply, understanding what's forecasting, what ex- what's actually in inventory right now. Personally, firsthand, I've gone undercover as a DoorDash and an Instacart shopper. I heard about this. And let me tell you that I have to deal with a lot of of out-of-stocks with some of your customers, as in like Kroger, you know? And, you know, someone is going on the Unilever ice cream shop on Instacart, trying to buy that pint of Ben & Jerry's. That flavor isn't there, but there's maybe a competing non-Unilever brand that's going to end up getting that sale because they just didn't know what was on the shelf because their estimates weren't right what do you see a role for for you guys to eventually license out your data or do something to help improve the experience of online grocery or is there already an innate second order effect that's already baked into your product you know by virtue of uh, of adoption that comes to ensuring that customers are actually getting the, the products that they're adding to their carts when they're online what do you see you know as your role in this whole equation
1: yeah so you're asking exactly the right question which is today for those um, online um, options such as doordash and instacart they still have more than 10 percent of the products that are items not found which is wild which is basically means that as a consumer I go on the app and and I want these products and I can bet that basically one in ten of them I'm not going to have and I'm going to need a substitute to that, and that's just that's just a bad customer experience, right? Like we don't want to have that. Um, That just sucks as as a a customer. And so um, and there's a variety of reasons for that too, by the way, which is um, you know the the SKUs that Kroger says they have in stock that they send to Instacart, um, some of them they just don't even purchase. (laughs) <laughs> they're not even part of the, yes. um, the, the purchasing, but they look like they're in stock um, on, on Instacart, right, which is, which is kind of brutal for them. And, and we fix all those things with what, um, with what we do. Um, today, probably the most notable um, thing that we do, and, and you might have heard of, is the fact that we feed shipped at Target um, the, oh, wow. the, um, the inventories in terms of what we have. And um, what, they, what they use is what's called the INF, an item not found. That rate has, has rapidly declined um, for, for our items with, with shipped because mm. we're able to forecast how much is, is actually um, in the store very, very accurately. So, you're absolutely right. There's a massive opportunity for us to essentially one day partner with these other folks to essentially uh, share this inventory information. Now, it's, it's quite complicated because our customer is the retailer. And so, and we honor the fact that. Um, this is um, data that we have an immense privilege to, to have and very few others have it. And so um, we do not share out this data and we do not sell out um, the, the inventory data shipped as a unique situation because they're owned by Target. Right. Um, but in, in other scenarios, um, we, we don't do that. There That's is a, a, a huge opportunity to be solved here. But again, um, we honor the fact that our customers have privileged data and um, that we're very careful with that.
0: Interesting, so this should really be a boon for first-party ordering from like a Kroger, Okado shed or, you know. I mean, already with Okado, you know exactly what's in that warehouse, so it would be more like store-picked first-party stuff.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, Okado, I think, has um, some really great advantages within um, their facilities, which is great. Um, They are also now doing in-store picking. And so they have yep. found, um, you know, it was, it was funny. I was talking to an Akato executive recently and, and he was <laughs> talking about their, their incredible frustration of the fact that, you know, they have this <laughs> wondrous world in their, in their warehouses that does not exist in the grocery store, yep. which is you don't know exactly what's in, in that store versus um, everything, you know, and within your warehouse.
0: Yeah. We're just not at, but we're just not at the penetration of e- e-commerce within this vertical yet where everyone can afford you know, to invest in this micro fulfillment or automation inside the store. I think there's still a lot, a lot of juice to be squeezed from just humans picking out of dark stores or just better picking and packing software logistics.
1: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right.
0: I guess kind of one last technical question, because that's how my brain works. But Mm -hmm. when you start to take on more and more of these aisles and these procurement of all these products, you're dealing with a lot more distributors. How, I guess, talk to us about the complexities of procuring these orders electronically, how you integrate, are you still submitting the same type of, like obviously the estimates of what you're buying are getting better and better and better, but is the output the same paper order, the email, the fax, the phone call that Mm -hmm. the grocers were used to doing or have you changed the output yeah, the, the kind of the workflow for how the grocer actually ends up play or how you end up placing that order on behalf of the grocer, essentially?
1: Yeah, yeah, great question. So about 20 years ago, a lot of the large grocers started putting pressure on their vendors to accept orders digitally. So even if the orders were done with pen and paper in the store, the way the store submitted those orders were via digital method. The now kind of accepted Um, data transfer uh, methodology within Grocery is via EDI. So, the grocers and the vendors have a connection and they submit all these orders via EDI. So almost all of the orders that we submit, probably close to like 90% are via EDI. The remainder are, you know, um, some APIs or um, CSV over FTP, um, but, but majority of them are really over EDI. And so um, that is a really nice kind of automated uh, method right now. I shouldn't say really nice. (laughs) There are a lot of problems with the EDI. Um, But but it's it's at least a digital method um, rather than sending an an email or a fax over to these vendors. And then, you know, I think they give everybody a little bit of a sense of scale and scope within a grocer. Um, So, you know, for some of the more specialty grocers who have a lot of different kind of vendors, they probably have about... 80 or so vendors for a given store. Um, For some of the more streamlined stores um, where, especially if they have their own distribution center, um, we're talking about way fewer number of vendors who visit the store, um, sub 40 and some of them who have um, their distribution centers and who force almost everything to go through distribution centers. I mean, you're literally only talking about like a handful of trucks um, that, that are going to that store. And so when we submit orders, we submit to all the vendors that that service that that particular store. And it's really important to understand that the distribution center has a really important factor that plays into that, which is that a vendor delivers to the distribution center, but then the grocery needs to decide how much they're going to send to each store from the distribution center. And so we order the total amount that goes to the distribution center, And then we do a secondary order um, to each one of those stores. Um, We we call this, and this is our own terminology, we call this dynamic redistribution. Um, And there's actually some great benefits on it, which is um, you're essentially able to to have this holistic order that goes to to the distribution center, and the timing between when it lands the distribution center to when it goes to the stores, you have some optimization opportunities, which is you have this latest collected data that's coming in from the stores and then you can send the right amount of product to, um, to the stores. And so this is, you know, this kind of, we, we always talk about, you know, what we order for the stores, but realistically, a lot of that product is, is ordered at the distribution
0: level. So this is the concept of self-distribution, which is like key in maintaining, you know, those tight margins.
1: Yeah. So the self-distribution has, has some, some really big advantages. Um, and I'd say a lot of grocers, um, who have um, a certain number of stores are going that direction, um, but you know the Krogers and the Targets are obviously um, very large uh, distribution centers to um, each one of their stores. Um, it gives them a level of control and a lev- level of negotiation that um, you know you just can't have if um, if you don't have uh, you know a distribution center. Yeah. So it's core to the grocery industry today.
0: Yeah, I've I've done some digging around Amazon and. I've seen them. You know, they've done something interesting where they had some warrants in Unify, I think, and then they also have started to self-distribute. I've found by actually driving to some of their distribution centers and talking to the security guards, um, that they are building their own network to do this. So, I I I foresee them eventually buying a Unify or someone if it gets cheap enough for them. Or that's my prediction. We'll just put that on the record right there. I'd love to, you know, one of the things I I like to ask guests in the grocery space is kind of to talk about the trends when it comes to consumers cooking at home, Uh, especially people, younger millennials and Gen Z who are on TikTok and seeing all these recipes. What do you think, you know, looking at the macroeconomic environment, looking at various trends, what do you think, what do you see are the, the factors that are going to make a case for you know, further growth within the food at home category against food away from home in this inflationary environment.
1: Yeah. So here's, here's what I'm seeing, and I'm seeing it um, in a little bit of a different lens than I would say people who um, are seeing all this kind of developing on TikTok or any sort of other <laughs> social media uh, place. Fundamentally, what's happening in the grocery store is that the fresh uh, uh, categories of the grocery store are expanding quickly. So, a general grocery layout is the fresh categories are in the perimeter of the store and the center of the store is kind of the more long shelf life items. And what you've seen happen fairly quickly over the last 20 years is that the center of the store is shrinking quickly. And then the fresh categories are growing very quickly. And so, today, um, you know, an average grocery store has over 40,000 SKUs in there. And more and more is becoming fresh. So about 60% of grocery today is is fresh categories. And we're seeing, uh, as consumers, this desire for very specific types of SKUs. And we're seeing this big SKU proliferation. Like Take just a look at the milk section. I know for our our own household, we have very specific milks that we want to buy. 20 years ago, you kind of had a handful of milk options. Today, you have all these alternative milks that you could potentially buy. Same with cheeses and butters, et cetera. And so you're seeing this this really big proliferation in terms of SKUs. And you're seeing it in every category, deli, um, bakery, um, produce, um, meat and seafood, this really big proliferation. That's driven by the store trying to capture as much demand as they possibly can. And they're trying to capture that demand because there is consumer demand for those particular SKUs. And if you're a store and you just had a very limited number of SKUs, you better have some other major offering to be able to capture that demand. A good example of that is is Trader Joe's or Costco, where you essentially have such better pricing that you're willing to have a much smaller selection. But otherwise, if, if Trader Joe's was priced the same level as other grocers, they would have failed. And that's because we're asking for this, this much larger proliferation excuse.
0: Fascinating to see. Yeah. I mean, I'm also saying like, you know, prepared foods and this idea that the, the grocer is going to become more satisfy more meal like occasions. Right. This idea of if gas prices continue the way they are, people don't want to do as many trips to the QSR down the street or whatever, go out of their way to go and grab a meal. Hence you see, you know, Kroger testing things with kitchen United, which is a ghost kitchen company that's got, you know, maybe half a dozen different kitchens where that one McDonald's or whoever they used to have used to sit within that store, within the store concept. Like any, any sense of where that's heading from where you sit in the ecosystem?
1: Yeah. So the, so the commissary model is, is really interesting and, and developing quite quickly. So one of the things that you're going to see in terms of independent grocers is, is they've realized that prepared foods, and this this was really pushed on actually in a major way with meal kits, that prepared foods in some way, shape, or form is highly valuable to consumers. And so if you look at, for example, um, cut produce, so you have cut pineapple or cut green beans and so forth. That whole section has blown up in just the last few years. And (laughs) that is a a big part of the store that we're seeing. And the way that they're able to do that is through their own commissaries. And you're going to see that throughout deli, throughout meat and produce. Like, for example, in most grocery stores today, you're going to see these pre made hamburger patties with herbs on them ready to go, right? That's the kind of stuff 20 years ago that you just didn't see. Mm -hmm. And so they're doing this with this investment. And commissaries. Now, the, the place that these small grocers have a huge leg up on is they can either do this in store and they can deploy fairly quickly with a commissary um, for, for these small stores. Whereas the large organizations like Kroger, to deploy something that customized is really hard. Um, but they have, um, you know, uh, Kroger specifically um, invested very heavily, um, and Walmart tried. On having um, commissaries across the country eventually Kroger kind of divested from that worked with vendors to make customized products for mm-hmm. them but now they're looking again and saying how can I have my own commissaries that I own to make the custom products that I want within my store and they recognized mm-hmm. that freshness is such an important um, ability for them to compete in the market especially against the independents who do have some really great customized products totally. um, and some prepared products for consumers
0: Yeah, the hub and spoke model also very prevalent in the, you know, chain restaurant world as as well. And this idea of, you know, convenience, defining convenience within this, these fresh aisles is really fascinating to see how lazy people have gotten with their knife skills and they want everything pre pre pre-portioned out and this kind of sliding scale of like, okay, well maybe 20 years ago, or I don't know, when did Blue Apron start? It started like 15 years ago or something. That was maybe too much effort and now we're somewhere like where we're like somewhere in between buying everything from scratch and do and following a very elaborate recipe and a meal kit. This interesting gradient I'm seeing, right? That you're alluding to.
1: There there is. I I totally agree. And I think on on a consumer level, what's interesting is that the grocer has now been able to target specific consumers for what they want. So there are the ones who just want a full meal kit. And there's the ones who want to make their own cheese from the milk that they're gonna buy at the store. <laughs> and you know you have this kind of gradient on that front and they're, they're trying to own each one of these customer segments um, more specifically and, and some of those um, categories are, are growing quicker than others.
0: And you're obviously powering whether it's coming from a commissary or whether it's you know these other auxiliary parts of the store they're attached in some way shape or form your engi- shelf engine is powering this regardless of whether it's um you know something that's procured from a third party or something that's done in house right
1: you you're absolutely right and fundamentally here's the thing anytime that you have some unknown demand and you have a shelf life on a product you have to forecast something or you have the potential for loss or the potential for a, a missed sale. And the complexity of that rises very quickly the minute that you have um, more of that demand volatility and the shorter the shelf life you have. So um, we apply for, you know, and it, it actually goes beyond food. We don't work beyond food, but the principle applies beyond food um, for anything that has um, a shelf life and has unknown demand.
0: Really fascinating. I definitely learned a lot and uh, really appreciate your fresh perspective. No pun intended on the industry <laughs> or pun intended, I guess. Anyway, I'd love to give you the opportunity to plug away anything either job related or customer related. If people want to, if someone's a genius engineer and wants to come build your AI, if someone is a small or large grocer and wants to get started on a trial how do, how do we get involved here?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, on the team level, I'd um, love to t- talk to you. We have many opportunities here at the company. And um, uh, yeah, absolutely, specifically talking about engineering, data science. Um, if you're interested in this realm, I um, would love to talk to you. Um, You know, you can reach out to Recruiting or you can literally just reach out to me personally. Um, I've got my email out there. It's it's stefan at shelfengine.com. Please reach out. If you're a grocer and listening to this and and you want to make an impact on your bottom line and as well as on the environment and reduce your waste, um, please do reach out. Um, I would love to talk to you personally about the opportunity that you have um, for your store on that front. If you're just a consumer in general and you're listening to this and you just really care about the food industry and you want to make an impact. Um, there's there's a couple things you can do. The first one is talking to your store. Um, that will make a big impact. Saying, hey, I really care about waste. I would like to know how you guys are doing. What systems are you using? I shop here on a regular basis and I want to see an impact. Um, the second one is um, talking to um, your policymakers and saying, hey, you know what? We have like basically no laws about um, reducing food waste in the U.S. There's some very light ones in terms of composting and and that kind of thing, but for a grocery store over-ordering, basically there are no laws on that, and we need to make an impact. The reality is the technology is here today, and we have an opportunity to make a dramatic difference for the enormous amount of food waste we have in our country. And so, um, you know, whether you are someone who wants to join our team, um, you are a grocer, Um, or you're just a consumer that cares um, you have an opportunity to make a difference so so thank you for listening it's 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 been great um chatting with matt today and i'm i'm eager to see the impact um that you all can make
0: amazing yeah i feel like this is such a fascinating time in the grocery space um between off-premise and inflation and so much activity going on so thank you so much for for tying it all together for us and um Wishing you the best uh, of success here.
1: Yeah, likewise, Matt. Thanks for having me on the show. And, and again, congratulations on on your show and, and your, uh, your growing audience. Thanks. We'll talk
0: soon. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you hear, please hit subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast. And if you're curious to get a firsthand look at the cutting edge of food and tech, check out Hungry.tv. That's Hungry with no U, where you can join in on live conversations like these or sign up for the free weekly newsletter.